Hello, and welcome to Still No Plan. I'm Jordan Granger. And I'm Autumn Webb, and we are so happy you're here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Still No Plan. We're super excited. We've been trying to have this guest on for a few weeks, and we finally have gotten together. She's actually my cousin, and she's going to share a lot of information about birth control and hormones and just kind of general sex ed stuff that, you know, we all are wondering all the time. So Maddie Granger has been working in healthcare-related jobs for over 10 years. Her experience includes a nurse's assistant for infants and toddlers in a clinic in Columbia to a surgical tech at University of of Utah, interning at a physical therapist, a psychiatric technician, and most relevant for the content of this episode, a clinical assistant at Planned Parenthood. She graduated in 2020 from the University of Utah School of Medicine and is currently working as a licensed physician's associate at Odyssey House Utah. We're kind of doing it in the wake of Roe v. Wade, and one of the most important things we do have some level of control over is obviously preventative care for pregnancy, and we're super excited to have you on, so welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. I I totally Totally agree. I think it's super important information. The opinions I express on this show are those of myself and do not represent the views and opinions of my places of employment or training. The information and opinions I offer today are for entertainment and education only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice from your own qualified board certified provider. I have no financial partnerships to disclose. Again, Maddie, thank you so much for being here. We're super excited for this. We'd love to just honestly jump right in and start chatting through birth control options. So we kind of have a list of the big ones, but I think the main thing that we're interested in like understanding is mostly how they work. And then we might have some follow-up questions on that and like what the impacts they they have on your body typically. So the first one I think is the most, you know, commonly understood, the pill. I'd love to talk through that. And then also I know there's like mixed ones that have like estrogen and progesterone and then ones that have only one of those, right? So like yeah. what's the difference between those and how do they kind of work on your body? The pill is a form of hormonal birth control, regardless of whether they are mixed or not. Pills are generally sorted into kind of two broad categories of mixed oral contraceptive pills or progestin-only pills. Sometimes they will be seen on, like if you were to Google them, those will be seen as OCP or oral contraceptive pill, which is generally used to describe the mixed form, and then POP, which is progestion only pill. So if you see those acronyms, then that that is usually what they're describing. Mixed oral contraceptive pills generally contain a form of estrogen and progesterone. And those are generally uh, manufactured forms of those hormones. And those are hormones. Those are two different hormones that women already have in their body. And when I use women, I am generally referencing people with a uterus and ovaries. Those are two hormones that are produced by the female reproductive parts that generally um, control ovulation and just reproductive health in general. And then those hormones also have control over different, like several other parts of the body as well. So between those two categories, they tend to have different side effects, whether they are intended or not intended, whether that is to control ovulation and help with ovulatory side effects and side effects that come with menses or not. And so kind of depending on the person, we'll kind of discuss the the reasons that they want to be on a pill, whether that has to do with reproductive needs or not, and, and then also risk factors that may affect what pills that might be the best option for their health in general. I, I was going to ask this later, but I think that was a great caveat into, so like 
I was I went on the pill when I was pretty young because I have PCOS. And so it was one thing that they did to help regulate my hormone levels was put me on the pill. And I don't remember which one I went on. But do you know of any like major concerns? Or I feel like people get a little bit concerned or like stressed out when I tell them that that was my experience, because they're like, Oh, you were so young, like they didn't need to do that. Is it pretty common? And I would say low risk to just use the pill and use hormonal things to like regulate your the way that your body is kind of naturally imbalanced, I guess. So I guess I'll, I would rather use the term common practice versus uncommon practice. And it's pretty common practice to have women who are having unpleasant side effects of menses use a hormonal medication to counteract those negative side effects. So I try not to use the term birth control pill because not all people are using hormonal medication for the purposes of birth control. Sometimes you're, you may be using it for side effects related related to menstruation or other medical concerns. So once a person starts to menstruate, it doesn't really matter what age they are. Age can sometimes be a risk factor for other medical concerns, but usually we're trying to counteract a bigger risk or bigger side effect with a medication. And so there are always risks and benefits with every medication. And oftentimes when we're putting someone on a a hormonal medication, it's to counteract something that's a bigger risk or a bigger medical concern. And so it's, it's more important to treat that and we kind of weigh the other risks that are associated with any medication. That makes sense. And I think that's kind of, you know, obviously what we chatted through when I was young and went on the pill. I, I, it also was not like you mentioned, like for birth control purposes. And I like the way that you called that out because I feel like it's just in my mind. I'm like, it's a birth control pill, but like you said, so many people use it for so many other reasons. So the next one we wanted to chat through is I think it's called Implanon is like the brand name maybe, but like the arm implant. Yeah. Kind of chat through what that is. Yeah, so the Implanon um, is one of the forms of a subdermal hormonal implant, subdermal meaning under the skin. Um, there are many brand names, and um, for the purposes of this conversation, I may I may use a brand name, but that doesn't mean it's the only form of that medication. There's Implanon, Nexplanon, there's other non-brand, like generic brands of the exact same medication, and that is a progestin-only form of contraception. It's a plastic rod that is coated in a progesterone-like medication that we place under the skin, and the purpose of it is maybe one for contraception. And then the other may be to help with menstruation related symptoms. So progestin only forms of contraception tend to have people with a uterus not ovulate in a regular way. And oftentimes what happens is the person stops ovulating. So they may still have uterine or menstrual spotting, meaning blood is still shedding from that endometrial lining through the vagina but that doesn't mean that they actually have an egg traveling from the ovary into the uterus that is able to be fertilized and implant. By stopping that egg from traveling into the uterus, that forms as or that works as one form of contraception. But the other things that happen with progesterone-only contraception is that the endometrial lining also thins, so it doesn't have as thick and nutritious of blood that a fertilized egg can implant in. And then also the um, cervical mucus or the mucus that kind of coats the outside of the cervix tends to thicken. So that works, it kind of works as like a, a three-pronged approach to contraception so that sperm can't actually enter the uterus. If they were to 
enter the uterus, there likely would not be an egg there to fertilize. And if for some reason sperm did get through the mucus, did fertilize an egg, the endometrial lining would not be as thick and wouldn't be as nutritious of a place for it to um, kind of implant and then start to develop into an embryo. So that's that's the way that all progestin-only forms of contraception work to prevent pregnancy. And again, some people don't use contraception for that reason as contraception. They might instead have really unpleasant side effects of menstruation and they prefer not to have a regular period. And progestin-only forms of medication like the implant do prevent you from ovulating. And so therefore you don't have as many of those side effects. The arm bar is similar to the progesterone only pill, like it works the same. And so the main, what are the main differences between the pill and the arm bar? Is it just like who like can't remember to take the pill every day? Like, is that the main benefit of that? Or are there other um, ways that it works differently too? Yeah. So that's a, that's a really great question. So when we're thinking about if, if we're comparing all the different forms of progesterone only medication, um, I kind of like to compare it in like um, convenience, like levels of convenience. So the progestin only pill you take every day, it's really important for that pill specifically to be taken at the same time of day every day. And the reason is that because our menstrual cycle is so cyclical and timed, it's really important to continue to not ovulate. And so if that timing is being switched up, that you become at risk, more at risk of ovulating. And so it not performing in the way of of contraception as much as you had wanted. So if you're not able to remember to take the pill every day, if maybe you are unstably housed or have a inconvenient work schedule, or just in general, for whatever reason, you you struggle to keep a, a regular schedule or timing, that pill doesn't tend to work as well. So the arm bar, like the implant is easier because once it's in, it's in and it's good for three to five years, depending on the brand that you're using. You don't have to remember to take it anything every day. The downside is that once it's in, it does have to ha- it does require a procedure to be removed. So it has to have a, a licensed provider to take it out. Um, you can't just stop taking it at any second. It does. It's a little bit more of an invasive procedure. We do have to like do a small incision in the skin to place it and have it and, and close that up depending on what your tolerability of invasive procedures that might not be your cup of tea. I was so scared of any of those options. Like I went with my friend to get her IUD and I fainted watching her get the <laughs> IUD. The doctor was like more concerned about me than she was about my friend <laughs> who literally just got one. But you brought up something that I, we didn't like, actually plan to ask this, but I want to talk about, um, like timing of taking the pill and like how important that is specifically like how does that impact efficacy rates because I know I have a lot of friends and I used to be like this too forget a day so then you take two you forget two days and you take three or like how much does that really impact the efficacy because I think a lot of people like oh I'm on the pill so it's fine but then if you're not actually taking it at 6 p.m. every day like what are the what can that how can that really impact you like what are the odds so that's a pretty big question there because there are hundreds of different kinds of pills I can't really blanket statement all of them generally with mixed contraceptive pills so ones with estrogen and progesterone the efficacy um, while it decreases if you miss one and take two the next day, it doesn't have as large of an impact as if you are taking a progestin only. Again, these medications work best when used properly, and that goes for all contraceptive me- measures. Every contraceptive measure works best when used kind of 
as prescribed or as directed. And when it comes to pills, that's one of the things that can be kind of in that gray zone is everyone is a little bit different depending on other your hormone levels of and other things that go into your menstrual cycle. Like like I said, it's it's difficult to kind of blanket statement all pills, but I can say that in general, progestin-only pills tend to be very, very time-sensitive and mixed contraceptive pills tend to be slightly less so. That being said, this is not my medical advice saying, if you miss a pill, it's totally fine. <laughs> I, I still direct all my patients to do the best they can to take their pill at the same time every day. Yeah, I really think, especially like college students I feel like we were all horrible at taking it all the time and like that's why we all all my friends looked into like other options because it just and like you were saying like sometimes it's just unrealistic like it's not necessarily a reflection on you that like you can't maintain the habit it also might be part of it was like our class schedule was all over the place and all these things also to add a note on the implant because autumn was like cringing at the concept of like it being a procedure I will say I have had a lot of these done and I have had the implant and the procedure is pretty like Obviously, it depends on your tolerance. I wouldn't recommend it for Autumn. She gets very queasy at this stuff. But it was very minor. They like numb you. You don't feel it. And it's like very a very easy situation. I'd love to get in to the birth control that I am on, which is the IUD. And I think it's one that people are very interested in, um, kind of like you were mentioning, because of ease. And also, and I'm curious if this is true, I've heard a lot of people say that like is more localized in your body. And so hypothetically, like the hormones aren't necessarily going to impact you as much like on like mental health scale or like beyond your actual reproductive system. So I'm interested if that is true, but I also would like to know how specifically hormonal that hormonal IUD works, and then we can get into the copper IUD. Yeah, that's a that's a um, great question. So IUD stands for intrauterine device. So intra means inside of, uterine means the uterus. So it is a device that works inside of the uterus. Generally, when people talk about a hormonal IUD, they're talking about there are actually several brands of them. So I won't go into the different brands because the brands actually, the main difference is that they last for different amounts of time, but they work in the same same way. And so this is also a plastic device coated in a synthetic progesterone only hormone that is inserted through the cervix and into the uterus. It is generally made from the same kind of polymer or same kind of plastic that a implant is made from. So the implications as far as allergies and things like that tend to be the same. The levels of hormone between a progesterone-only pill, an implant, and an IUD tend to be in that order, slightly decreasing because when you take some a medication by mouth, it has to be digested in the stomach, other digestive organs, and then dispersed into the bloodstream that goes throughout the body. Whereas because a, on the implanon, the medication is being released into the subcutaneous fat and then directly into the bloodstream, there's slightly less processing. And then similarly, because the IUD is directly in the area of the reproductive organs, it tends to have a little bit of less hormones being released into those areas to affect the ovary ovarian release of eggs. So it does tend to have a slightly lower level of hormone, but it is not significant. It doesn't tend to be as significant in the way of affecting other symptoms, if that makes sense. But everyone is different. And sometimes people react better to to one form of progesterone-only medication than others. There are also other progesterone-only forms of medication that are used for contraception. Just to be clear, these are not the only ones. So the IUD works in the same way that um, I talked about that subdermal implant or the, the 
arm bar, as some people call it, in releasing progesterone to affect the ovaries, the um, cervical mucus, and the endometrial lining. So it actually works in the same way, but just in a different location. And because it is localized, it tends to have a little bit less hormone. The way that 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 device is engineered, it lasts a little bit longer depending on the device that you get. Some last for three years, some last for five or seven, depending on which one. So it's kind of different things work for different people. Is there any like relevance or extra protection or whatever, because it's like literally placed in your cervix? Is there like physical blocking that the IUD does or is that not a thing? (laughs) No, that's a good question. It does not physically block anything. There are some studies that link more thickening of the cervical mucus because it is physically located in the uterus, but there is, because there is the, that's what progesterone does. There is also thickening of the cervical mucus with the implant, um, the oral progesterone only pill and other forms of progesterone only medication, but the progesterone only IUDs tend to have a little bit more. But other than that, there's no physical blocking. The IUD is not karate chopping sperm. Like there's, <laughs> there's, there's nothing physically blocking pregnancy other than doing those physiological changes to, to the body. I think I'm just going to keep picturing it karate chopping (laughs) because that is just makes it better. Um, and then what about the copper IUD? How does that one work? Yeah. So the, the copper IUD is also made from, from plastic, but it is actually coated in a tiny copper wire that is wrapped around the plastic. So if you look up pictures of the IED, they will both look like little T's, but the copper one will have this little kind of like brown, red, copper colored coating on it. And that's actually a wire that is wrapped around the IUD and it's this tiny wire. And what the copper does is it actually works as a spermicide. And it's a really, really strong spermicide that makes the uterus a toxic environment for sperm to be alive in. So it doesn't change the way you ovulate. A lot of women do find that they tend to have stronger menstrual symptoms. So women who have cramping during their period, they might find that they have stronger cramping. Um, Similar things with the amount of the sheer amount of blood that their uterus sheds during um, menstruation might be a little bit more. But the way that it works as a contraception is just that. It just works as a very strong spermicide. On that note, are there spermicides that you recommend? Are there like prescription strings? I feel like no one that I know uses spermicides. So I'm just wondering, like, is, are they less effective? Like how? Fexi specifically, I've been seeing a lot about Mm -hmm. and hearing a lot of girls our age talking about. So if you have any insight on that one. Yeah. So Fexi is, I wouldn't necessarily put it in the same category as spermicide specifically because it actually works on the vaginal pH. So in my mind, spermicides are working on sperm and working on actually killing the sperm themselves. Whereas Fexi works as a it's called a vaginal pH regulator. So it actually changes the pH or the um, chemical acidity of the vagina. And so it essentially is making the vagina a a bad environment for sperm to live in. And so by, by putting that medication in the vagina, it essentially keeps the sperm from being able to go up inside the cervix and meet with an egg. 
Fexi predicted, I think it's, sorry, I don't have the statistics in front of me right now. I think it's between 80 and 90% effective, which a lot of spermicides, depending on their marketing, which is kind of hard to navigate those numbers versus what's able to be marketable, work between 60 and 90%. So I don't have to answer your question, Autumn. I don't have any brands that I specifically recommend. I usually recommend spermicide as kind of a backup method. If someone is truly trying to prevent pregnancy, I usually recommend that in addition to another form of contraception, whether that be condoms or tracking cycles, things like that. I usually recommend those statistically less effective forms of contraception together in conjunction with another to kind of like add that statistical barrier on top of each other if that is the purpose to prevent pregnancy specifically. I listened to the Fexi like owners on a podcast and a lot of their ads that I've seen and in the podcast they were talking about they their their efficacy rate is like 95 is what they say. And okay. so is that like is that something that we'll see, you know, the longer that's on the market, we can see the true efficacy rate and like you know, we can't trust that because it's just their studies, like, and there hasn't been more research on it. Cause I asked my doctor if I could get that. And the doctor looked at me like, uh, what is that? And I was like, I don't know. I've heard yeah. it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So is it, does it take some time to like trickle down for all the doctors to be like, okay, this is a true, like, this is better than the other spermicides. Or is that, I don't know, like how I feel like it has to be true if they're saying that everywhere. Right. Or like, is there a <laughs> right. <area> so <laughs> it's kind of, honestly, it's, it's really interesting because all the time patients come in and ask me about medications that I haven't heard of. And that's because medication companies take all this time and money to develop medications and then get it out there on the market. And that doesn't always mean that it, it reaches us and then at the same time, that doesn't also mean that that becomes the gold standard of practice. Gold standard, meaning this is what we can count on. This is what we go to. This is what all the research has been done to support. It protects our patients. It protects us. And so when new medications come out, it doesn't always mean that they're bad. It just might not, it might mean that there hasn't been enough studies for it to become a gold standard of practice. And so sometimes it takes patients asking like, Hey, I saw this on TV or my friends are talking about this. What is it? And then we research it, learn about it and kind of either choose to add it to a repertoire or maybe wait a little bit and see, you know, I need a little bit more, a little bit more research to add this to my evidence-based practice. Um, And every practitioner is different in how much it takes for them to want to add something. Oftentimes, if something is not covered by insurance, that gives us pause because insurance companies also have liability. And so if two parties are saying, we don't want to be liable for for this, it kind of gives me a reason like, hey, maybe I should look a little bit more into this to make sure that it's safe and working really well for its intended purpose, right? That is in no means a huge reason not to prescribe something, but it's just another reason. If if several parties, you know, aren't interested in prescribing it or covering it, it kind of tells us, oh, maybe we should look a little bit more into that to make sure that it's actually working for what it's intended to work for. Earlier, you talked about when you're prescribing spermicides, you like to do it in combination with something else. Um, And you mentioned hormone tracking or like basal body temperature tracking. Could you maybe talk about, I think basal body temperature is like a different one, but could you maybe talk about those? And then, I don't know, I feel like I've just started hearing about those in the last like two years. So just some more like info on those and how effective those ones are. 
Yeah. So these are these um, other like fertility tracking um, methods are a really like deep, long conversation that we could go on for for hours. So this would be this this will be kind of like a dip your toe situation where I give you a little bit of information and and if you're super interested, you'll probably you know, dive down that, that Google hole until you decide to talk to a fertility specialist. So fertility awareness methods are essentially tracking your body's state of being to figure out how fertile one is at any, at any moment. Okay. So basal body temperature is, is essentially taking one's temperature every morning, right? When they wake up at about the same time of the day, and it essentially tracks that during when you have higher levels of progesterone and estrogen, you tend to have a little bit higher basal body temperature, internal body temperature. And the most fertile days tend to be at the same time, two or three days before that increase of your temperature. So if you're tracking your temperature every single day at the same time, two or three days before that increase tends to be when those most fertile days are. And so by tracking that every month, it tend, you, you are able to predict when your most fertile time is. Okay. Another way that you can track is by the texture consistency of the cervical mucus. So this, t- this tends to be for people who are really comfortable with their own body like the location of their cervix, being able to touch and identify textures and feelings. And with the, with that, like tracking of the cervical mucus, like different things about it, you can also track when like your most fertile days would be. Also ovulation, um, like predictor kits that you can get. And those are measuring usually by urine is the most common. And that essentially measures a couple different hormones, your follicular stimulating hormone and your luteinizing hormone. Those are two different hormones that also change during the menstrual cycle and kind of predict your, your fertility over time. So all of these kinds of like tracking measures are things that one would want to do over time to see patterns because just one month doesn't necessarily predict how it's going to be all the time. So it takes several months to track these things over time and watch these ebbs and flows in either temperature or cervical mucus consistency or levels of these hormones so that you can say, okay, generally on the second week of the month is my is my higher fertility week, things like that. Would the logical first step you mentioned, would that be going to your doctor or you said a fertility specialist? Like who do you go to for that? And I know there's like apps for tracking. Do you recommend any of those? So I do think that is it is important to talk to your primary care provider just to make sure that you don't have any pre-existing conditions that would make those kinds of tracking less successful for you especially if you are either trying to get pregnant or trying not to get pregnant. If someone is just a little bit like fertility curious and they have other forms of contraception on board that would protect them from unwanted pregnancy, that might be something that I, I would say, yeah, it, it might not hurt to kind of to start looking into, you know, fertility tracking apps and things like that. But I do think it's important to talk to your primary care provider just to make sure that there's nothing that would put you at greater risk of either an unwanted pregnancy or not getting pregnant if that's something that you are seeking. 
because there are so many things that are specific to an individual, whether that be previous physical health concern or a mental health concern. Sometimes these things can actually have big mental health implications. I try not to make my patients really obsessive and take their entire day of tracking these different things and upsetting their entire day's flow because at 12 o'clock every day, they have to go test their cervical mucus and it really upsets their workflow because they can't go to the bathroom and do this and then take this urine test. So while while there are physical health concerns to some of these things, it can have implications on other parts of your life. They're also, in my mind, really important to your general health. I really yeah. would love to talk um, about two more things. One being plan B and how that works. And then I would love to just like touch on abortions and what that option is and how that works and what resources people could have. But we can start with plan B. Plan B is one brand of emergency contraception for the purpose of being kind of all inclusive. I'm going to try to use the term emergency contraception in general because plan B is only one form of it. Emergency contraception is a medication that people with uteruses at risk of pregnancy use after an encounter that would put them at risk of pregnancy to prevent an unwanted pregnancy. So plan B is one form of that that is commonly available in regular retail pharmacies. And it tends to be less cost prohibitive than other forms of emergency contraception. That medication, it essentially what it does is it prevents someone from ovulating. And so if there were sperm already in the vaginal canal and in the uterus, it would prevent an egg from being released from the ovary into the uterus in order to be fertilized. And so it is not an abortion. It does not kill or damage an already fertilized egg or embryo. All it does is prevent an egg from leaving the ovary and meeting a sperm either in the fallopian tube or the uterus. It is not 100%. Obviously, it can still uh, an an egg could still leave the ovary. What most commonly happens when this form of medication is not successful is that egg had already left the ovary and was traveling either through the fallopian tube was already in the uterus. And so at that point, a sperm could easily fertilize that egg and implant. And the medication essentially was not, was not working on that specific egg and situation. Um, so like I said, there are multiple forms of emergency contraception plan B works for a certain amount of time. And that success rate decreases with the amount of time after the sexual encounter that would put someone at risk. And then there are a couple other different forms of emergency contraception that will work for different amounts of time. So while plan B is available over the counter, there are other medications that are available by prescription that work a little bit longer than plan B. IUDs have now been approved as emergency contraception. So depending on the number of days after the sexual encounter, those can actually be placed as a form of emergency contraception as well. And that would be something to rapidly discuss with your provider if that was something that was of concern for you and a form of contraception or emergency contraception that you were interested in. And then um, abortion. So can you talk through a little bit of like what it is, what it's like? And I mean, obviously now this is going to be very different from state to state, but where can you access them? Who can you go to um, if you are looking to get an abortion? There are two broad categories of abortion. Abortion is the 
removal or destruction of a pregnancy. This can be from any time from the time an egg is fertilized and implants all the way through the course of a pregnancy. The term abortion is is used right now in our culture oftentimes is fairly negative, but we use the term abortion anytime a pregnancy does not reach its full term. So a miscarriage, medically speaking, is one form of abortion, for example. It doesn't mean that anyone induced that. It's just the passage of a pregnancy through the cervix before it is at term or able to survive out of the body. The, there are two, two main classes of abortion and that those tend to be called medical abortion or procedure abortion. There's a lot of different terms, but those are kind of the two general big classes. A medical abortion is where a person with a pregnancy takes a medication and then um, oftentimes a second medication is needed to help that Uh, the passage of that embryo or pregnancy to pass through the cervix into the outside world. In some countries, in some places, one medication is used and in some, two medications are used. And that's really specific to the physical location that you're in, as well as the pregnancy and lots of different factors. That is generally how, how a medication abortion works. That is most of the time done in one's own home or wherever they physically are. Oftentimes, depending on the state, that medication is either provided in hand to a patient or picked up at a pharmacy or mailed to them. That again, depends on the, often in our country, it depends on the state you're in. Sometimes it depends on the rural area as well as laws. And those medications are taken at different timings depending on the situation. So if someone had already had a miscarriage, but the pregnancy was not already passing from the uterus through the cervix and out, they might need a medication in order to help that to to happen. And that is generally a, a medically necessary medication for the like safety of the mother. And that happens whether that abortion was what we call missed, which would be a miscarriage or intentionally aborting that embryo. The other form of abortion is a procedure. And again, this might be elective or non-elective depending on the situation. That is where a cannula or a small medical device is passed through the cervix into the uterus and physically removes the products of conception from the uterus. In a hospital or like at a clinic or wherever? Yes, that would be done at an abortion certified facility, whether that be a hospital or an outpatient facility. For in terms of like the difference in the, like a, the medical and the procedural options, um, you have to be like, is there a certain timeline for how far along is the pill not as effective after a certain timeline? Yeah. So the medication abortion is only an option up to a certain age of the pregnancy. And that varies a little bit depending on state and country. So that tends to be an option. They are both options in earlier pregnancies. And then at a certain point, again, depending on different policies and procedures, the medication option stops being an option and there's only the procedure option after that point. And in terms of accessing, like, where do you go? Do you go to your primary care physician? Can you go to an urgent care? Like, how quickly do you need to get on it? Yeah. What What is kind of like, what do you do? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question because it can be kind of difficult because now that reproductive right or not now, but reproductive rights seem to have always been really um, politicized and and sometimes it depends on your moral upbringing and things like that. You may feel comfortable asking some providers and not others. If you do feel comfortable asking your primary care provider or OBGYN, I usually recommend going to whichever of those is available first because in many states and countries, certain things have to be checked off the list before an abortion can be accessed. And so I always think in this kind of situation, time is kind of of the essence because I want every person to have as many options as possible. So maybe someone doesn't know that they for sure want to access abortion care, but they're not sure and they just want to know what their options are. I always think it's really important to be able to talk to someone that can give them trusted, good information and inform them what all of their options would be at this point so that they can make their best informed decision. I would recommend seeing either their primary care provider, their OBGYN, and if they don't have access to either of those things, In the United States, Planned Parenthood is a very trusted source for all of this information because it has regulation at the national as well as state level. And so in every state, even if abortion services aren't accessible in their state, Planned Parenthood can then point them in the right direction of where their closest or most accessible resources might be. I did look up some resources online. I've been kind of keeping up to date every week so that I can also give my patients the best kind of most up-to-date options if maybe Planned Parenthood is too busy or the wait is too long or they're not able to access that for whatever reason. So other than PlannedParenthood.org, you can also look at health.gov, which is kind of the national public health website. You can look at health.gov and then look into sexual health. And then there's a separate section for choose the right birth control. And then abortion at the abortive services is kind of a, a last link at the bottom of it. And it'll kind of link to local sources for an individual that they can look into because Planned Parenthood is not the only source for abortion services. And so finding other options might be necessary as well, depending on someone's location or or access to care. I know a lot of people are curious, where can you put your money? Autumn and I both are in a very liberal state. I just saw it. Didn't Utah just do some voting to protect abortion rights? Um, and yeah, Utah's- as opposed to that. Utah is doing a really great job in the world of conservative states as far as protecting humans' right to choose as far as pregnancy goes. I mean, all three of us may not be directly impacted by this change in regulation. Do you have recommendations for how people can help and where people, if it's money or time, um, can donate? Yeah. So, I mean, I always recommend that people vote in their their primary and local elections, because we've seen even more in these past few years that those small and localized elections have had huge implications. So as far as that goes, I always recommend voting. All Planned Parenthoods accept volunteers, and they use volunteers in a wide breadth of ways. Sometimes that means walking around and passing out information. Sometimes that means having booths at different markets and events and things like that, making sure that the right information reaches people. You can donate to Planned Parenthood, both the state and at the national level, depending on where you want your money, what you want your money to stand for. And then there's also the National Abortion Federation that works to help to get people if they are unable to access abortive care in their location helps to either 
transport them or help with costs to find it elsewhere. You can donate to the National Network of Abortion Funds. And then there's also lots of other clinics and resources that help patients at a lower level to access things like that. Those are things like free clinics, homeless clinics, and community health centers that oftentimes is the first stop for these people that might need these services and have nowhere else to go. Abortion disproportionately affects people of color, low-income populations, rural populations, migrant populations, LGBTQIA plus individuals that don't have access to resources, insurance, funding, friends and family and other forms of support that may help them to access those services, those other things that that prevent people from getting the care they need. So again, community health centers, pride centers, and homeless clinics are always good places to give your money. It might not always reach exactly to help abortion specifically, but funds in those places always help people who need it. And that is one of the forms of health care that is widely needed across so many populations. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was super informational and educational. I really think people are going to love this. So I think this is going to be great information for us to share out. So thank you so much for joining us.